Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Job chapter 1 this morning. So the issue of the book of Job deals largely with how does a man or a woman of faith respond when they lose everything? And apparently for no discernible reason, God takes away everything you have. It's an issue that's not a minor one because it can shake the very confidence that we have that God is good, that God is loving. This is an issue that's important for us because we all suffer at times for apparently no reason that we understand. We serve God and yet we suffer financial hardships. We try to live righteously, but we are afflicted with great problems in our families. We turn away from evil, yet evil does not turn away from us. Why do the righteous suffer? And how are we to respond when disaster invades our lives and carries away our wealth and even our family? Well, Job has much to teach us through the book. But as we uh, launch into chapter 1, we will follow the text as the Holy Spirit has laid it out for us. And he begins first in developing this whole story with a description of Job's character. We see in verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So he begins with a description of Job's piety. The language that's given in verse 1 is not designed to teach us that he was sinless. These are general expressions of the character of a man who walked with God. He was a sinner like everyone else is a sinner. That will become more obvious as we work through the book. But nevertheless, he was a godly man. And what this attests to is that even believers, though we are still sinners, can, by the grace of God, live a life that attains to advanced levels of godliness. And that was Job. He was blameless, a man of personal integrity, morally sound. He was upright. He was just, faithful in his obedience to God's statutes. He feared God. He lived his life. He conducted his life with the desire to honor God and please God. And he turned away from evil. He refused the temptations of the world and the enticements to sin. And he turned away from them to walk in obedience to God. His friends later on in the book will describe Job as a man who continually helped other people and encouraged other people. He was a good man. He was kind. He was generous. Later on in the book, we'll also find out that Job was somewhat of an incredible leader within his community. That when he walked into the room, even the princes and the nobles would shut their mouth to listen to Job. He had that kind of respect. He was honored among the community. He was a godly man. Next, the Spirit describes his possessions in verses 2 and 3. He had seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and you'll find the number seven and the number three emphasized in this description because they add up to ten, and the two numbers in and of themselves speak to perfection and completeness just, just to symbolize the abundance of God's blessing upon this man's life. Seven sons. Three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. 
and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. What a family. 7,000 sheep and goats. Incredible for that day and age. 3,000 camels. Camels were prestigious animals. It suggests that Job engaged in the caravan trade. He probably today would have been like a tycoon in the trucking and shipping business with all those camels carrying all the cargo from place to place. He had 500 yoke of oxen, indicating that he farmed in a considerably extensive acreage of land. To have 500 yoke of oxen, that's a thousand. So he, he was a farmer. He had 500 female donkeys. They were beasts of burden. But the fact that it's noted they were female is because they would give birth to other donkeys, and that was certainly something very valuable in that day. And then he had very many servants, male and female servants, to work on his vast estate that he had. And then he is described as the greatest man of all the men of the East. And probably from the reference point of this book, consider the East as anything east of the Jordan River. That's probably the East. Everything east of the Jordan River or the Dead Sea, that's the East. And he was the greatest man of all of them. So we have presented before us the richest and most affluent godly man in the East. Think of, except for the godliness, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. He had that kind of stature, that kind of wealth, that kind of influence. He's an amazing man indeed. And then the Spirit describes his priesthood to his family in verse 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. What his day refers to uh, may very well be the birthday of that particular son. Uh, different opinions, but seems like that might be plausible. So each son on his birthday, he would hold a feast, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, maybe it was a seven-day feast, Job would send and consecrate them rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. So he's described as being a priest over his family who knew the great danger of sin and particularly of cursing God in the heart. So fearing that his adult children might be guilty of that, Job continually offered up burnt offerings, which were for an atonement for sin. He understood that. And he would offer up a sacrificial animal to atone for their sins. And he did this regularly, lest they had committed a sin and offended a holy God. And Job desired to intervene if he could. He did this early in the morning, following the last day of their feasting. He did it for each one of them, and he did it continually. And if anything, what Job would remind us as fathers today is that even when your children grow up and become adults, a godly father continually intercedes to the throne of grace on behalf of their adult children that God would bless them, forgive them, guide them, lead them. That was the heart of Job. That was the heart of this godly man. So from here now, we are brought into 
the, ha- the, the counsels of heaven. So now we, we read of the plot to test Job. So in verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now here the sons of God uh, refer to the class of angels, creatures that God created to worship Him and serve Him. And the idea is on this particular day, the sons of God present themselves before the Lord. So the, the, the notion suggests that they are being called regularly to give an account of their activity. Have they been obedient to the tasks that God has given them to do? And so now they're coming back to give an account. They're presenting themselves before God, not only to give a report, but to probably give to, to receive the next set of instructions from God that they are to carry out. These are no doubt both the holy angels and the fallen angels apparently must appear as well because Satan appears among them. The name Satan here in this uh, chapter actually has an article in front of it suggesting that it is a title to this fallen angel. And the name Satan primarily means adversary. We know in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, that he's, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And that fits his character pretty well. So Satan also appears. And then in verse 7, God initiates a conversation with Satan. He says, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So now the Lord begins to interrogate Satan. From where do you come? So he singles out Satan for questioning. So that Satan is going to become a tool in God's hands God's going to call Satan and interrogate him concerning his activity, and he asks that question, from where do you come? Now, God asks the question not because he doesn't know where Satan has been, but to get Satan to give an account for where he has been. Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So he's asking Satan this question, not because he doesn't know the answer. He does. But to hear how Satan responds. And he knows that in advance, obviously, as well. So how does Satan respond in verse 7? Well, I've been roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And that answer is somewhat evasive. It's noncommittal. Roaming suggests just random movement. Well, God, I've just, you know, I've just been kind of walking around. That's all I've been doing, just kind of walking around. But the actual word that's used here for roaming suggests that it's a, more of a sinister roaming around, more like a prowling with evil intent to do harm. Peter, if you remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter warns us, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is prowling around. He's roaming around with an evil intent to devour someone, destroy someone if he can. So the Lord now in verse 8 initiates the testing of Job's faith. He says in verse 8, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's God's opinion of Job. Same as in verse 1. But notice the Lord initiates this whole thing. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
He calls Job his servant, indicating that the Lord looked upon Job as his faithful follower. He acknowledges Job's godly and righteous character, but basically he is sicking the devil on Job. Satan, have you paid attention to Job? God intentionally turns Satan's gaze to his servant. It's going to appear that Job is going to become a test case for showing the true character of faith in God. Will it persevere in times of trial, in times of suffering, in times of affliction, or will it not? So God basically initiates the sovereignty of God is over this whole thing. He gets Satan's attention. He initiates, have you considered my servant Job? Now Satan's accusations in response are found in verses 9 through 11. Listen to how he responds. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So now the Lord has uh, challenged Satan as he considered Job, and immediately Satan responds with this whole litany of accusations. Notice he begins by saying, Does Job fear God for nothing? And the accusation is implying, No, God doesn't fear you for nothing. Job fears you because of something. Not nothing, but because of something. Because you have blessed him. That's why Job fears you. So there's a great accusation here. Obviously, again, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan is launching an attack not only to destroy Job's character, but to challenge the sincerity of Job's faith. This is where you see in the devil's hearts this cynicism that rules the wicked heart where Satan believes that Job's faith is fake. It's not real. He doesn't worship you for nothing. He worships him because you have blessed him. That's why he believes in you. In verse 10, the devil says, Have you not made a hedge about him and his home and all that he has on every side? In other words, Satan is accusing God of basically seducing people to be his worshipers by blessing them with wealth and, and, and health. Job is only a believer because of God's blessings. That's what Satan is getting at. You see, in his own perverted mind, Satan thinks that no one would worship God on their own unless they were being bribed with blessings. That's the only reason why anybody would worship you, God. You've bribed them with all the, the good things you've given to him. And sadly, Satan has no doubt seen many examples of that among the humankind, people who worship God in good times, but in bad times they turn away from God. He's seen that many, many times and assumes that that's really the true nature of Job's faith. Satan thinks that Job's faith is based upon ulterior and selfish motives, that Job has a mercenary faith Job is a believer because God is paying him to be a believer. And so in verse 11, he issues a challenge to God. He says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Test him and you'll see his faith is fake. 
So Satan presents to God a test scenario to prove his own case, his own belief that Job is a mercenary. He says, curse Job and Job will curse you. Stretch forth your hand and touch all that he has. Take it all away. And you just watch God and he will surely curse you to your face. His faith is a weather vane faith. Oh, it blows towards you when the winds of blessing and affluence and prosperity are blowing his way. But you turn the winds and you watch his faith turn as well. And he will turn away from you quickly. Satan also attacks God's character with this scheme of his. Because in effect, he's saying to God that God, no one would worship you unless you bought their loyalty. So not only is he attacking Job's character and faith, he's attacking God. That God can't get worshipers unless he pours out his blessings upon him first. No one would love you, God, except for your gifts. Job's faith is not rooted in really a love for you but a love for himself and a love for your blessings, but he doesn't love you. He just loves your blessings. Take them away and see what's in his heart. So amazingly, in verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So God accepts Satan's challenge. In all of this, God is in total, absolute control. He initiated the test. He limits the scope of the test. Everything that he possesses, you can touch, but you cannot touch his body. So God is, again, just showing the fact that Satan has really no authority to act unless God grants him permission. Satan is not equal to God. Satan is a creature, very finite and very fallen. But Satan cannot do anything apart from God's permission. That's why when Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Satan could not do that unless God granted him permission. And so again, you see this incredible undertow of just God's sovereignty and control of every aspect of what's going to happen to Job. So God not only limits the trial, to his possessions, but God grants Satan the opportunity to curse Job to see if Job will curse God. So in verses 13 through 19, we now come to the order of events that Satan brings about to to ruin uh, Job. We read in verse 13, first of the Attack of the Sabaeans, starting in verse 13. Now on the day which his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So the scene is that all ten of his kids are gathered at the oldest son's home. They are celebrating. They are feasting. And on the very same day, there comes in rapid fire explosives this disastrous news one after another, like dominoes quickly falling and toppling over, this series of horrible news that comes rushing into Job's house. The first is that all of the Oxen, all of the donkeys that he had had been stolen and taken away by the Sabaeans. 
They had killed all of his servants that were tending those animals, and only one survived to come and bring the news. The Sabaeans probably come from southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula, close to present-day Yemen. This is probably the area where the Queen of Sheba comes from, who will later have audience with King Solomon. But they come up and they steal all of his animals, all of his oxen, all of his donkeys. And then in verse 16 comes another. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now the fire of God falls upon all the sheep and just burns them in the fields and slays all the servants of God who are caring for them. What does the fire of God refer to? Well, this idea can have different meanings in Scripture. It can certainly be a description of the fire of God's judgment and wrath that fell directly from heaven on Nadab and Abihu when they made that bad incense and offered strange fire to the Lord, that that was a fire directly from God and brought judgment and death to to those two sons of Aaron. As possible, but remember, Satan is the one who is really behind these things under God's sovereign control. So it's probably maybe a fire of a different nature, and many commentaries say that it could be a reference to lightning, since lightning is also described as a fire from heaven at times in Scripture. And maybe what had happened was an incredible lightning storm, intense, destructive, that probably came from the sea, and maybe there was just a lightning blast, just spearing like like spears coming out of heaven, striking all of the sheep, spreading in the ground, just burning them, killing them, all the servants. Maybe it was something like that. We don't know exactly of what that fire refers to, but since Satan is the primary agent in this, possibly that is its uh, its best meaning. But whatever it was, it decimated all of the sheep. It killed all of them and all the people who were there caring for them. And then in verse 17, we have the attack of the Chaldeans. That while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And each time there's only one person who survives to bring the news to Job. The Chaldeans divided up in three bands. They swooped down. They took all the camels. They killed all the servants. And then in verse 18 and 19, the worst news of all, the worst is saved for last. When it says, and while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job's dearest possession is children whom he loved, whom he faithfully ministered to. He's made sacrifices for their sins have now all been destroyed. A great violent wind from the east sometimes referred to as a Sirocco wind, came across the eastern desert, struck the house where they were feasting. It collapsed. It struck all four corners of the house, maybe indicating either like a tornadic wind or maybe it struck all four corners just to show the, the completeness, the totality of the devastation and destruction. But all of his children died. This is a level of suffering that only those who have lost children can know. The loss of finances is one sorrow. The loss of family is a far deeper one. And Job's sorrow was multiplied by ten. 
It's what happens when God removes His hedge from around His people. One moment Job's cup was full, the next it was empty. And notice how quickly the disasters come from the enemy once the hedge is lifted. The protection of God. When God lifts His hedge from around our lives, we are exposed to all the vicious hatred of all the devils in the world. And we in a moment's time can lose everything. That's what happened to this godly man. The amazing thing in the crescendo of the chapter, of course, is in his response. It's amazing. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and he worshiped. We see the intense sorrow of Job just by the way he, his soul is responding to the torment of this rapid fire hammer blows that are just coming one right after another. One servant brings a bad news. Another walks through the door and he brings a bad news. And after they've all come, he responds expressing this intense sorrow, tearing his robe. That was a custom of the day. Shaving his head, falling to the ground. And all of these represent a torn heart and they are acts of self-degradation to match the inner degradation of the soul. But he did not curse God. He worshipped God instead. Job's worship is absolutely amazing as he communicates it in verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job is giving to us what no doubt is one of the noblest expressions of faith found in any man under the heavy burden of sorrows and trials. He acknowledges God's complete and total sovereignty over these trials. He mentions the name of the Lord three times. And even though his afflictions have come from all four compasses, all four points of the compass, it comes from the north, which would have been the directions the Chaldeans would have come from, the east where the wind came, the Sabaeans from the south, the fire of God from the west, if it was the storm with lightning, would have come off the sea. And yet, even though his afflictions came from all directions around him, he looks directly up because he knows that ultimately it was God who is in control. It was God who is behind them all. He doesn't blame the devil. He doesn't even know of Satan's actions in this. He doesn't blame the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the wind or the fire, he looks up and acknowledges God. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. But how can he worship God in this way? How can a righteous man speak such words in the midst of such soul-tormenting suffering? And I think what we learn from this is that the only way we can do that is if our theology is sound. And his theology was very sound. In this <clears throat> word of praise to God, we find three incredible and important theological truths to help us to have the proper biblical perspective in times of suffering. The first thing he says is, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. What Job is indicating in this <clears throat> first statement is that he understands that he has no right to anything that he has. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb. And when I die, I'll return naked to go there. And the there 
is not back into his mother's womb. Most understand that he understands that there is the womb of the earth. And maybe it would be somewhat of a reflection of the creation account. God told to Adam that I made you from the dust of the ground and to the dust you shall return. And so Job is understanding that when I came into this world, I came naked. And when I leave this world, I can't take anything with me. I'm going to leave it, i.e. as if I'm naked. So he is acknowledging this important truth that everything we have in this life, every blessing that God has given to us is on loan from God. We don't have a title. We don't have a claim to any of it. It is all on loan from God. We have nothing when we're born and we leave it all behind when we die. And so Job is acknowledging this important theological truth that everything I have is because God has granted it to me. Paul tells Timothy the same thing when he says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And so the first important thing when we're going through a time of loss, a time of disaster, a time of great affliction is to recognize that whatever possessions are being taken from me, I don't have a claim to them. God has granted them to me, but they ultimately belong to Him. And so in the next statement, he says, he acknowledges the Lord in this, that the Lord gave all of the wealth, all the possessions, all the children that He had, the Lord gave them. But because they don't belong to Job, he doesn't own them, the Lord has the right to take them away. And he's acknowledging that in this second theological statement. Again, he doesn't curse the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans, the fire or the wind. He looks past all the intermediate agents of all this suffering and all this loss, and he looks ultimately to the hand behind it all. And he acknowledges the hand of God. Satan really in all of this is a very minor player in the story. After chapter 2, when Satan gets through with the next stage of the affliction, God is going to thump him off the stage. He's going to dismiss him. And he doesn't show up again in the book of Job for the rest of the book. He's in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's done what God has allowed him to do. He's accomplished God's purpose. And God just, you're out of here, you're gone. Goodbye. And he doesn't reappear. As a minor player, his role will be done soon and he'll be dismissed. But the reality is, if God in one hour of your life decides to take away from you everything that you have worked a lifetime to accumulate, if He chooses to remove from you every blessing that you have worked hard to earn, we have to only acknowledge that He has the right to do so. Because it doesn't belong to us. The abilities that He gave to us to earn that come from God. The opportunities come from God. The blessings come from God. It all belongs to Him. We think that we own our stuff, but we don't. We are only stewards of it. He entrusts it into our care while it's on loan to us, but He can take it away. Now, the prosperity gospel hates this reference of Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Let me quote from you one of their leading theologians, Benny Hinn, who says, I have news for you. That is not Bible. That's not Bible. That's referring to the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord giveth and never taketh away, says Benny Hinn. And just because he said, blessed be the name of the Lord, that doesn't mean that he's right. And when he said this, he was just being religious, and being religious doesn't mean you're right. 
So the Lord rebukes Benny Hinn and everyone else who takes that line of thought because at the end of the book, he told Job's three friends, my wrath is kindled against you because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Job spoke what was true. They did not. But there's no temper tantrum here with Job. There's no self-pity. There's no denial of reality. But there's just a humble acknowledgement that God's hand was in it. He didn't understand it. But he acknowledges that God's hand is in it. And this is a manifestation of a gracious faith that though we do not understand why our trials come, Job didn't. But we know that God is good. We know that God is loving. We know that He has a purpose and a plan and we trust Him. And so he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. God has impoverished Job. Job has not cursed God, but he has praised God and worshiped God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is not wrong to do what he did. And this is an amazing faith that comes from Job, that he had this belief in the goodness of God, that God's purpose was there, though he could not comprehend it. And these disasters did not undermine his belief that God's love was still for him. In verse 22, we read that Job did not sin or blame God. And he was sinless. He didn't curse God. He didn't blame God. He blessed God instead. So Satan's scheme utterly failed. Job's faith did not. Instead of cursing, he blessed. In wrapping this up, I want to take a few more minutes, so have the patience of Job, please. So just make a few applications. The first thing that we need to to learn from this is don't let your belief in the Lord be tied to your temporal possessions. Don't let your faith be tied to your finances. Don't let your love for Christ be tied to your liberties. God can take them all away. And when God takes them all the way, all the way if He chooses to do that, then the gracious heart will learn that our best blessings that come from God do not comprise what we own or what we put in the bank or what we wear on our backs, but the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that we cannot lose. The gracious heart delights and finds her joy in the blessings that cannot be taken away or stolen or burned or destroyed. A man's life, as Jesus said, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Enjoy them. God gives them for His honor and His glory. We can enjoy them. We should also use them for His glory. But a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Because if it does, if my life is wrapped up in my possessions and they're taken away from me, then I will lose my joy, I'll be miserable, and I will impoverish my soul. The way to drive a wooden stake into the very heart of that blood-sucking vampire of the idol of materialism is to daily acknowledge God's right to do whatever He wishes with everything I have and to also rejoice and make Christ my treasure, my greatest blessing, my greatest joy. Second application is that God has countless reasons for why He sends trials into our lives, and most of them He chooses not to reveal to us. Job had no idea of what was going on in his life. No idea. He is left to struggle to try to understand it. And if we are left to struggle in our own wisdom to try to understand it, then it will lead only to despair. 
God's providence is oftentimes so beyond our comprehension because His reasons are often locked within a vault of His secret things, and we don't have the key. And so He teaches us that we must learn to trust in His love, His goodness, His wisdom, and His sovereign plan, even when we don't understand. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no attribute more comforting to His children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. That's what we need to learn. That oftentimes, God just doesn't answer the question, why, Lord, have you done this? But He just says, trust me. I'm infinitely wise and good and holy, and I have a purpose for you that will be good for you and for my glory. Trust when you don't comprehend. And then the last application is that neither Satan nor any avalanche of trials that come upon your life can extinguish the true grace of God in the hearts of His people. I recently watched a, one of these extreme events and a snowboarder was on the top of a mountain covered with snow and he jumped off the edge and he was going to snowboard down this whole mountain. And once he started down, the whole shelf of snow began to slide. And he found himself in an avalanche and someone in a helicopter was filming it all. And he disappeared in the avalanche of snow that had just engulfed him and it looked like it had swallowed him whole. And I was watching that. I thought, he's dead. That guy is gone. He's history. What a fool. And then... A few seconds later, out of the bottom, as the thing is still coming down, all the snow's flying, here comes a snowboarder just skating off to the side, and he survived it. And there's a sense in which the avalanches of, of, of trials and afflictions in life can seem to gobble up the grace and the faith in God's people. But it can't. It cannot. Because God knows what Satan doesn't know. And that is that God by His grace will sustain the faith of Job through all of this. That God has promised that He who began a good work in you, He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That God knows and that His grace will sustain Job's faith so that Satan is doomed to fail. But Satan doesn't know that. Not sure what Job knew at this point. But the true faith that God gives cannot be extinguished. It can be troubled. It can stumble. It can falter. But it cannot fail. Remember what Jesus told to Peter. Simon, Simon, Peter has requested permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's the grace from the praying intercession of our Savior in heaven that sustains our faith in times of trial. So I love that story in Pilgrim's Progress in the interpreter's house. Some of y'all know that story well by now. When interpreter takes Christian, takes him to a wall where there's a fire that is blazing next to the wall. And there's a man standing there with a bucket of water that's pouring the water on the fire, trying to extinguish it. And Christian asks interpreter, what does this mean? And he says, well, that man standing there is Satan. And he's pouring water on the fire of God's grace in the heart of a believer trying to extinguish it. But the amazing thing is as Satan poured that water on the fire, the fire grew hotter 
and brighter. And Christian asked interpreter, what explains this? And interpreter says, follow me. And he took him and showed him behind the wall. There's another man who had a jar of oil pouring the oil onto the ground and went under the wall feeding the fire so that even though Satan was trying to extinguish it, that other man, Jesus Christ, was continually pouring in his oil so the fire grew hotter and brighter. That's the grace of God that sustains us in times of trials and times of affliction. Yes, our faith can stumble, it can falter, but it will not fail because God has guaranteed that He will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, Job's faith shines brightly in the worst kinds of darkness of the soul. But because Job only sees the hand of God involved in all these events, his faith will become clouded. The more that time goes on, the creeping doubts begin to enter in, and he is tempted to think that God has not treated him right. How could God do this to me and be just? And Job can't find solace and even knowing that God is punishing me for my sin because God was not punishing him for his sin. He does not understand why these afflictions have come his way. Job will have to suffer through all of these doubts and all of these thoughts before he gains the wisdom he needs to be restored in his walk with the Lord. But before that faith and restoration comes, Brother Job is going to have to fall further in chapter 2. As a takeaway, let us learn from Job's faith and let us seek God's grace to imitate Job's faith in our times of losses that we might not murmur against God, but we might humbly trust our lives into His hands when we don't understand. And may God teach us all that important lesson. Well, you have been very patient. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, just see the response of this godly man to the severest trials anyone could imagine. And yet by your grace, you sustained him and he worshiped you instead of cursing you. Lord, may that kind of faith find a home in our hearts as well and may we learn to love you above and beyond any temporal blessing that you may grant to us that we might walk in grace and faith and love you and treasure you above all things help us to do that we pray in jesus name